Section 3 of Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Lovers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Jennifer Painter. Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Lovers by Albert Hubbard. Josiah and Sarah Wedgwood, Part 1. Admitting my inexperience, I must say that I think the instinct for beauty and all the desire to produce beautiful things, which you and Goethe referred to as the art impulse, is a kind of sex quality, not unlike the song of birds or their beautiful plumage. Josiah Wedgwood to Dr. Erasmus Darwin Once upon a day a financial panic was on in Boston, Real estate was rapidly changing hands, most all owners making desperate efforts to realise. Banks which were thought to be solvent and solid went soaring skyward and even collapsed occasionally with a loud, ominous R.G. Dunn report. And so it happened that about this time Henley Thoreau strolled out of his cabin and looking up at the placid moon murmured, Moonshine after all is the only really permanent thing we possess. This is the first in the series of twelve love stories, or tales of moonshine, to use the phrase of Thomas Carlyle. In passing, let us note the fact that the doughty Thomas was not a lover, and he more than once growled out his gratitude in that he had never lost either his head or his heart, for men congratulate themselves on everything they have even their limitations. Thomas Carlyle was not a lover. The great passion is a Trinitarian affair, and I sometimes have thought it a matter of regret, as well as of wonder, that a strong man did not appear on the scene and fall in love with the winsome Jeanie Welsh. Conditions were ripe there for a great drama. I know it would have blown the roof off that little house in Cheney Row, but it might have crushed the heart of Thomas Carlyle and made him a lover indeed. After death had claimed Jeanie as a bride, the fastnesses of the old Sartor Resartus soul were broken up, and Carlyle paced the darkness, crying aloud, Oh, why was I cruel to her? He manifested a tenderness toward the memory of the woman dead, which the woman alive had never been able to bring forth. Love demands opposition and obstacle. It is the intermittent or obstructed current that gives power. The finest flowers are those transplanted, for transplanting means difficulty, a readjusting to new conditions, and through the effort put forth to find adjustment does the plant progress. Transplanted men are the ones who do the things worthwhile, and transplanted girls are the only ones who inspire a mighty passion. Audrey transplanted might have evolved into a Nell Gwynne or a Lady Hamilton. In such immortal love stories as Romeo and Juliet, Tristram and Isolde, and Paolo and Francesca, a love so mad in its wild impetus is pictured that it dashes itself against danger, and death for the lovers, we feel from the beginning, is the sure climax when the curtain shall fall on the fifth act. The sustained popular interest in these tragedies proves that the entranced auditors have dabbled in the eddies, so they feel a fervent interest in those hopelessly caught in the current, 
and from the snug safety of the parquet live vicariously their lives and the loves that might have been. But let us begin with a life story, where love resolved its moonshine into life, and justified itself even to stopping the mouths of certain self-appointed censors, who cavilled much and quibbled overtime. Here is a love so great that in its beneficent results we are all yet partakers. About all the civilization England has, she got from the Dutch. Her barbarisms are all her own. It was the Dutch who taught the English how to print and bind books and how to paint pictures. It was the Dutch who taught the English how to use the potter's wheel and glaze and burn earthenware. Until less than 200 years ago, the best pottery in use in England came from Holland. It was mostly made at Delft, and they called it Delftware. Finally, they got to making Delftware in Staffordshire. This was about the middle of the 18th century. And it seems that, a little before this time, John Wesley, a travelling preacher, came up this way on horseback, carrying tracts in his saddlebags and much love in his heart. He believed that we should use our religion in our life, seven days in the week, and not save it up for Sunday. In ridicule, someone had called him a Methodist, and the name stuck. John Wesley was a few hundred years in advance of his time. He is the man who said, Slavery is the sum of all villainies. John Wesley had a brother named Charles who wrote hymns, but John did things. He had definite ideas about the rights of women and children, also on temperance, education, taxation, and exercise, and whether his followers have ever caught up with him, much less gone ahead of him, is not for me, a modest farmer, to say. In the published journal of John Wesley is this, March 8, 1760, preached at Burslem, a town made up of potters. The people are poor, ignorant, and often brutal, but in due time the heart must be moved toward God and he will enlighten the understanding. And again, several in the congregation talked out loud and laughed continuously, and then one threw at me a lump of potter's clay that struck me in the face, but it did not disturb my discourse. This whole section was just emerging out of the Stone Age, and the people were mostly making stoneware. They worked about four days in a week. The skilful men made a shilling a day, the women one shilling a week, and all the money they got above a meagre living went for folly. Bear-baiting, bullfighting, and drunkenness were the rule. There were breweries at Staffordshire before there were potteries, but now the potters made jugs and pots for the brewers. These potters lived in hovels and, what is worse, were quite content with their lot. In the potteries, women often worked mixing the mud, and while at work wore the garb of men. Wesley referred to the fact of the men and women dressing alike, and relates that once a dozen women wearing men's clothes, well plastered with mud, entered the chapel where he was preaching, and were urged on by the men to affront him and break up the meeting. Then comes this interesting item. I met a young man by the name of J. Wedgwood, 
who had planted a flower garden adjacent to his pottery. He also had his men wash their hands and faces and change their clothes after working in the clay. He is small and lame, but his soul is near to God. I think that John Wesley was a very great man. I also think he was great enough to know that only a man who is in love plants a flower garden. Yes, such was the case. Josiah Wedgwood was in love, madly, insanely, tragically in love, and he was liberating that love in his work. Hence, among other forms that his insanity took, he planted a flower garden, and of course the garden was for the lady he loved. Love must do something. It is a form of vital energy, and the best thing it does, it does for the beloved. Flowers are love's own properties, and so flowers, natural or artificial, are a secondary sex manifestation. I said Josiah Wedgwood was tragically in love. The word was used advisedly. One can play comedy, two are required for melodrama, but a tragedy demands three. A tragedy means opposition, obstacle, objection. Josiah Wedgwood was putting forth a flower garden, not knowing why, possibly, but as a form of attraction. And John Wesley, riding by, reined in, stopped, and after talking with the owner of the flower garden, wrote, He is small and lame, but his soul is near to God. Josiah Wedgwood, like Richard Arkwright, his great contemporary, was the thirteenth child of his parents. Let family folk fear no more about thirteen being an unlucky number. The common law of England, which usually has some good reason based on common sense for its existence, makes the eldest son the heir. This on the assumption that the firstborn inherits brain and brawn plus. If the firstborn happened to be a girl, it didn't count. The rest of the family grayed down until we get the last run of shad. But nature is continually doing things just as if to smash our theories. The Arkwrights and the Wedgwoods are immortal through Omega and not Alpha. Thomas Wedgwood, the father of Josiah, was a potter who made butter pots and owned a little pottery that stood in the yard behind the house. He owned it, save for a mortgage, and when he died, he left the mortgage and the property to his eldest son Thomas to look after. Josiah was then nine years old, but already he was throwing clay on the potter's wheel. It would not do to say that he was clay in the hand of the potter, for while the boys of his age were frolicking through the streets of the little village of Burslem where he lived, he was learning the three R's at his mother's knee. I hardly suppose we can speak of a woman who was the mother of thirteen children before she was forty, and taking care of them all without a servant, as highly cultivated. Several of Josiah's brothers and sisters never learned to read and write, for like Judith Shakespeare, the daughter of William, they made their mark, which shows us that there are several ways of turning that pretty trick. Children born of the same parents are not necessarily related to each other, nor to their parents. Mary Wedgwood, Josiah's mother, wrote for him his name in clay, and some years after he related how he copied it 
a hundred times every day for a week, writing with a stick in the mud. Lame children, or weakly ones, seem to get their quota of love all right, so let us not feel sorry for them. Everything is equalised. When Josiah was fourteen, he could write better than either his mother or his brother Thomas, for we have the signatures of all three appended to an indenture of apprenticeship, wherein Josiah was bound to his brother Thomas for five years. The youngster was to be taught the mystery, trade, occupation and secrets of throwing and handling clay and also burning it. But the fact was that as he was born in the pottery and had lived and worked in it and was a most alert and impressionable child, he knew quite as much about the work as his brother Thomas, who was twenty years older. Years are no proof of ability. At nineteen, Josiah's apprenticeship to his brother expired. I have my trade, a lame leg, and the marks of smallpox, and I never was good-looking anyway, he wrote in his commonplace book. The terrific attack of smallpox that he had undergone had not only branded his face, but had left an inflammation in his right knee that made walking most difficult. This difficulty was no doubt aggravated by his hard work turning the potter's wheel with one foot. During the apprenticeship, the brother had paid him no wages, simply board, meat, drink and clothing. Now he was sick, lame and penniless. His mother had died the year before. He was living with his brothers and sisters who were poor and felt that he was more or less of a burden to them and to the world. The tide was at ebb. And about this time it was that Richard Wedgwood Esquire from Cheshire came over to Burslem on horseback. Richard has been mentioned as a brother of Thomas, the father of Josiah, but the fact seems to be that they were cousins. Richard was a gentleman in truth, if not in title. He had made a fortune as a cheesemonger and retired. He went to London once a year and had been to Paris. He was decently fat was senior warden of his village church, and people who knew their business addressed him as squire. The whole village of Burslem boasted only one horse and a mule, but Squire Wedgwood of Cheshire owned three horses, all his own. He rode only one horse, though, when he came to Burslem, and behind him, seated on a pillion, was his only and motherless daughter Sarah, aged fourteen, going on fifteen, with dresses to her shoe-tops. He brought her because she teased to come, and in truth he loved the girl very much and was extremely proud of her, even if he did reprove her more than was meet. But she usually got even by doing as she pleased. Now they were on their way to Liverpool, and just came around this way a cousining, and among others on whom they called were the Wedgwood Potters, in the kitchen, propped up on a bench, with his lame leg stretched out before him, sat Josiah, worn, yellow and wan, all pitted with smallpox marks. The girl looked at the young man and asked him how he got hurt. She was only a child. Then she asked him if he could read, and she was awfully glad he could, because to be sick and not to be able to read was awful. 
Her father had a copy of Thompson's Seasons in his saddlebags. She went and got the book and gave it to Josiah and told her father about it afterward. And when the father and daughter went away, the girl stroked the sick boy's head and said she hoped he would get well soon. She would not have stroked the head of one of those big burly potters, but this potter was different. He was woefully disfigured and he was sick and lame. Woman's tenderness goes out to homely and unfortunate men. Read your Victor Hugo. And Josiah, he was speechless, dumb, his tongue paralysed. The rumpus swam and then teetered up and down and everything seemed touched with a strange, wondrous light. And in both hands Josiah Wedgwood tenderly held that precious copy of James Thompson's Seasons. In 1860, just 100 years after John Wesley visited Burslem, Gladstone came here and gave an address on the founding of the Wedgwood Memorial Institute. Among other things said in the course of his speech was this, Then comes the well-known smallpox, the settling of the dregs of the disease in the lower part of the leg, and the eventual amputation of the limb, rendering him lame for life. It is not often that we have such palpable occasion to record our obligations to calamity. But in the wonderful ways of providence, that disease which came to him as a twofold scourge was probably the occasion of his subsequent excellence. It prevented him from growing up to be the active, vigorous workman, possessed of all his limbs and knowing right well the use of them. But it put him upon considering whether as he could not be that, he might not be something else and something greater. It sent his mind inward. It drove him to meditate upon the laws and secrets of his art. The result was that he arrived at a perception and a grasp of them which might, perhaps, have been envied, certainly have been owned by an Athenian potter. Relentless criticism has long since torn to pieces the old legend of King Numa receiving in a cavern from the nymph of Egeria the laws which were to govern Rome. But no criticism can shake the record of that illness and that mutilation of the boy Josiah Wedgwood, which made a cavern of his bedroom and an oracle of his own inquiring, searching, meditative mind. You remember how that great and good man, Richard Morris Buck, once said, after I had lost my feet in the Rocky Mountain avalanche, I lay for six weeks in a cabin, and having plenty of time to think it over, I concluded that, now my feet were gone, I surely could no longer depend upon them, so I must use my head. And he did. The loss of an arm in a sawmill was the pivotal point that gave us one of the best and strongest lawyers in western New York. And heaven knows we need good lawyers. The other kind are so plentiful. Gladstone thought it was smallpox that drove Josiah Wedgwood to books and art. But other men have had the smallpox, bless me, and they never acquired much else. Josiah kept Thompson's seasons three months and then returned it to Sarah Wedgwood with a letter addressing her as Dear Cousin. You will find it set down in most of the encyclopedias that she was his cousin, but this seems to be because writers of encyclopedias are literalists 
and lovers are poets. Josiah said he returned the book for two reasons. First, inasmuch as he had committed it to memory, he no longer needed it. Second, if he sent it back, possibly another book might be sent him instead. Squire Wedgwood answered this letter himself and sent two books with a good long letter of advice about improving one's time and not wasting life in gambling and strong drink as most potters do. Six months had passed since the squire and his daughter had been to Burslem. Josiah was much better. He was again at work in the pottery. And now, instead of making brown butter crocks and stone jugs all of the time, he was experimenting in glazes. In fact, he had made a little wooden workbox and covered it over with tiny pieces of ornamental porcelain in a semi-transparent green colour that he had made himself. And this pretty box he sent to Sarah. Unfortunately, the package was carried on horseback in a bag by the mail carrier, and on the way the horse lay down or fell down and rolled on the mail bag, reducing the pretty present to fragments. When the wreck was delivered to Sarah, she consulted with her father about what should be done. We ask advice not because we want it, but because we wish to be backed up in the thing we desire to do. Sarah wrote to Josiah, acknowledging receipt of the box, praising its beauty in lavish terms, but not a word about the condition in which it arrived. A few weeks afterward, the squire wrote on his own account and sent ten shillings for two more boxes. Just like the first, only different. Ten shillings was about what Josiah was getting for a month's work. Josiah was now spending all of his spare time and money in experimenting with new clays and colours, and so the ten shillings came in very handy. He had made ladles, then spoons, and knife handles to take the place of horn, and samples of all his best work he sent on to his Uncle Richard. His brother Thomas was very much put out over this trifling. He knew no way to succeed, save to stick to the same old ways and processes that had always been employed. Josiah chafed under the sharp chidings of his brother, and must have written something about it to Sarah, for the squire sent some of the small wares made by Josiah over to Sheffield to one of the big cutlers, and the cutler wrote back, saying he would like to engage the services of so talented a person as the young man who could make a snuff-box with beautiful leaves modelled on it. Thomas Wedgwood, however, refused to allow his brother to leave, claiming the legal guardianship over him until he was twenty-one. From this we assume that Josiah's services were valuable. End of section 3